Welcome back to the Murphy Corp podcast. This week, Rach sat down with Nate Walkinshaw, CEO of Pluralsight. Now, this is a really interesting guy who actually started his career in the emergency medical field and really talks a lot more about how working with people has really given him an edge in his career. Enjoy. Um, and, and people are hard to um, to help them understand, you know, what 
you know, what new opportunities could happen, not only for a business, but also align them to their own core values, their own beliefs, their own decisions, the own things that they can see, and really getting people to actively listen to, to those opportunities. It's, uh, it's interesting because um, we've probably recorded, I don't know, maybe a dozen uh, business change sessions now. And the one common thing that's coming through every time is people. Huh. Uh, and it may be obvious, uh, but the reality is without engaging and having people on board, yeah. your business change is going nowhere. Fast. That's right. Yeah, 100%. I agree with it. Uh, I, you know, waterfall product development, it's, it's amazing how much time, money and effort we've put into you know, reinforcing that behavior only to, to change it. I think what's cool now is that if, if you look at how fast technology changes, um, you know, you're not gonna have a stint from the 1950s to 2003, 2005, which is when really cloud, when Amazon Web Services launched, you know, their, their prelude and then into their cloud-based, you know, engineering software. I mean, I'll preach to the choir here, but <clears throat> I mean, if you're a technology leader and 2005 and you looked at what AWS did and you were a technology leader running mainframe with vendor lock-in you know on two languages on you know COBOL, Fortran, whatever in .NET and Angular that was painful time I mean that was extremely painful and that's what we're living through but if you're a new company today with 600 new languages frameworks tools and process I mean you can be fast yeah you can you know very very quickly and uh, so that means the mentality of the technologist that you hire today, you know, a digital native is is their frame of reference is much different than than the people that we had hired, you know, in the past. Yeah, it's funny. We were asked by a client recently, you know, could we hire people who could support their mainframe, who could code in COBOL? And my immediate view was, no, not unless we're going to step into a DeLorean, yeah. because we're going to really struggle <clears> to um, we're going to struggle to find those skills but also we're going to struggle to keep people interested with that technology. Yeah. You know, um, you'll find this pretty interesting, um, you know, working in the technology skills development world, we just, and you're going to, you're going to be shocked when I say this, but we just barely started to stand back up for the very first time building technology curriculum for mainframe. So actually two uh, development roles. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and the reason why is that, um, big organizations with massive uh, amounts of legacy code base, their, you know, their current employee base that built and maintained those are retiring. This or, is the problem that we passing, were asked to solve. Yeah, are passing away. <clears throat> and so what's happening is that some of the new hires that are coming into these big, you know, institutions need to know the skill set before these people ever, you know, leave the company or before they pass away. And so we've been asked to develop, you know, a, a ton COBOL mainly. Wow. Yeah, a, t a ton of COBOL skills, and then teach this younger generation the COBOL skills so they can maintain, um, you know, the mainframe. And here's the here's the crazy thing: they're loving it. They're actually enjoying working uh, in that because skillset. it is so different. I'm not real sure as to why they why they love it yet, um, because it's very new to us. We just made this decision. Uh, well, it'll be the skills will roll out in 2020. So, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of an offshoot, this, but um, uh, there's certainly two or three of our customers <clears throat> who are asking yeah. for exactly that skill. So, maybe we'll have an off the camera uh, discussion around that. Yeah. Be because the nature of big government departments yeah. um, and financial institutions in the UK is that they are still sitting on mainframe and COBOL, yeah. not exclusively, yeah. um, but because, you know, from a political standpoint, 
you, you are very unlikely to get support to invest in moving from one to t'other because it's not sexy. Yeah. You know, the only time you'll get the money to invest is when it goes tits up. Yeah. At which point <laughs> someone's going to say, yeah. for God's sake, why is it yeah. sitting on there in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it is not it is definitely not sexy at all. Um I whenever I talk to James, he's our CFO, I just said, Hey look, you know, this isn't a go to market. You're not gonna get a more average price for license here on yeah. rebuilding infrastructure and it's gonna add more to the more to the bottom line. Um and it's it's usually an unpopular vote, but you know, continuous delivery, right? changes that I can deliver yeah. more value to customers but that's not yielded or or sawn until after we finished a vast majority of our rewrite okay wow yeah well that's a uh, that's a, a, a real-time opportunity yeah um, and and from a personal perspective then Nate you know where in your career have you achieved uh, business change um, I mean Pluralsight's been a really really fun story I mean it's and I could give you I could give you three different examples but the most recent is you know when I when I started at plural site that company had been you know around for quite a quite some time and i think it's we're in our 16th year right now but it was <clears throat> um it was on prem so we were at a colo dot uh, net and angular and essentially it was um a web page it was just a single page of 700 courses uh, that people could just command f and query i mean there was nothing what? sophisticated and the website and the web application were all stitched together, and uh, <clears throat> there were only eight technologists. So we weren't a we weren't a technology skills company because we didn't have any technologists. It was like PM, UX designers, and like eight engineers. So this was a full rewrite from the, uh, a rewrite from the ground up. Uh, we, we migrated everything from ViaWest on prem to the cloud, and then we hired the entire technology team, <clears throat> and then we rewrote the entire web app uh, as well. And I remember funny story when I was there, uh, royalties, the royalties, so we have 2,000 authors, right? And these authors that are like, are like you and I, they're, they're subject matter experts. So they're authoring these courses as an as-lived practitioner in their role. And this is why it's been so successful, is that people are learning from somebody that actually knows how to do the tech. Yeah. So we pay them a royalty, and we pay them like a lot of royalties, like seven figures. Right, some of our highest paid authors made over two million dollars. Wow. But the royalties calculation. I can see another opportunity in a minute, night. You should come off it for <laughs> us. But the royalties calculation was was actually sitting on a box, you know, in Farmington, Utah, next to uh, the software developer. And I said, hey, you know, we we really need to rewrite the service. And she's like, no way. She's like, I have no idea. I'm not going to touch that thing. It's the old black box. <laughs> yeah. Was, you know, I'm not going to touch that thing. I'm like, well, you know, we we really got it. We got really got to handle that. But I mean, that's what we dealt with. I mean, we dealt with with all types of stuff that were just super high risk, single points of failure. Not a lot of people knew the code base whatsoever. And you know we had to go in and completely transform the business, and and I think we did. And um, what challenges did you come across as part of that? I mean, it couldn't have always all been seamless. Yeah, I mean, I think it it goes back to the first question you asked, which is, you know, the the way that we delivered um, value. And luckily, I mean, the engineering team was already super talented, so their mindset for continuous delivery was already there. What wasn't there or wasn't well established, just because it wasn't of any fault of the teams was continuous discovery, which was talking to customers, yeah. you know, doing prototype observation, truly listening to what they had. So they kind of use the needs. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, is like, it, what was beautiful about that is that they love to continuously deliver value. But as soon as you saw the whites of the eyes of the customer, not 
you know, not engaging with something that you thought that you had engineered that was going to be, you know, accepted or widely adopted, that's where all the change happens. That's when you rid bias. That's when you get, you know, people all thinking together as a team. You get people thinking the customer is the most important, you know, individual. They are the ones that break the tie. Like what we believe and what you think. As soon as you ship an experience to millions of people, you don't get to, you don't get it. You don't get the right to decide if they're going to like it or not. Yeah, that's true. They'll they'll decide for you. Um, and and so you know, being able to open up your ears and listen to them is super important. Nice. Yeah. It's funny because as you were talking, then I was thinking about big you know products and services that have shipped before and that I've been involved in. And we yeah. talked before about the work I did with uh, with the NHS around kind of empower the person and, and providing real-time services to, you know, to, to patients. And, you know, let's face it, if they don't like it, you are going to hear. Oh, yeah. And, of course, you now have a platform with social media that gives everybody a voice. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, I, I mean, I absolutely love it. You know, people need to hear, need to hear what the customer wants. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and what do you think the, um, what do you think the lasting legacy is in the work <laughs> that you've done with Pluralsight? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that is an awesome question. I have this like little miniature graphic in my head. Um, and the graphic kind of goes, if, if you look at, I was, I would like to go back to technology because technology today is for today. This is the current best thinking I have today. So you can ridicule it later, but you know. Um, I'll make sure we're off camera then. That's fine. <laughs> the, the current technology really dictates the way that we organize. I'll share an example. So um, if you look at cloud from 2005 to 2010, every company that built um, on AWS <clears throat> is in cloud lock-in and we're, we were not susceptible to that. Yeah. Like, like we, we are, you know, we're built on AWS 100% until, you know, someone new decided to, to come along and now we're using a multi-cloud strategy. So that same thing also applied to data right and the way you think about data and data could look like a lot of data lakes today look like monoliths which could be single points of failure as yeah. well right and so but really, that was trendy it was super trendy and the thing that's interesting <laughs> is like so as you begin to automate the the lower half of the technology stack and you you know get teams racing toward the edge to build more human centered products you know if i fast forward 10 years from now the whole goal of this is well, I want to have as, um, a bifurcated structure on the data side so I can stream data around all the critical business needs that I have. I want to automate the entire compute stack as much as I can. So it's basically knobs and dials and that, that'll change roles. I mean, DevOps roles probably yeah. won't exist, you know, um, which is interesting for our industry. Like we have a lot of roles that you have to teach people to love and like and be engaged in because that's a moment of need, but then those things are going to go away and then it's going to turn into some other role. So again, I, I love it because it goes back to the first question you asked me, which is I have to be like a, an unbelievable behavior manager. Like I have to help teams create a vision, create a strategy, and then help, help them understand like why technology is going to move the way it's going to do and then how it's going to affect their own primacy goals, their own families, their own ability to, to make a wage uh, and continue developing those skills, you know, over time. And so if I look out 10 years from now, um, you know, I think I think data. It, we we need to do you know security by design and be really ethically grounded in the way we think about data products. And I think you can do a lot of good, like a lot of good. I think a lot of cures for a lot of things already exist um, in aggregated, repeatable data. 
uh, but we just we just need to be really cautious about how moral and ethical we are. It's um it's an interesting one because data has, um <laughs> you know data at the minute is as popular as digital and yeah. as transformation has been in the last ten years. Yeah. And I it feels to me like it's on the same sort of journey. Yeah. You know you have the advent of chief data officers. Yeah. We've got clients approaching us for a kind of maturity assessment of their data. Yeah. And a lot of the time they don't know where the data is. And of course, without knowing where it is, yeah. um, you, you're not using it in the right way and yeah. you're not understanding the true value of it. Yeah. Um, it was interesting you talking about kind of data lakes. I, uh, I was working in government at that time and of course, you know, the data lake Hadoop, and I'm not naming products in a negative way, yeah. but everybody wanted to move to that. Yeah. But again, um, it's the evolution, isn't it? So it's yeah. the stepping stone yeah. of uh, how you start to, to learn how to use it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, um, if you're good for a war story here. Always but, good <clears throat> for a war story. Yeah, I mean, so so I, I love the, I mean, Hadoop's good, but so Kafka, you know, is all the hotness right now. That's something super popular today. You know, 10 years from now, I'll get laughed out of a room for even saying Kafka. But, you know, <laughs> Kafka was open source technology. The reason why Kafka was so important is because as we move from monolithic to microservices or bounded contexts, that allowed our teams to be cross-functional, they could be co-located or not a remote, right? And they could use any language framework tool or process. The issue there is that as I built all these like teams of teams or the Spotify model is so pe people love so much, it did give us everything we wanted, which was to continuously deliver value. The problem is, is that all of that data sat in that single microservice. So Kafka was born. Right, and that was the data vascularity, the piping that we needed to move that very quickly. So I was, you know, we adopted Kafka as an open source language. Well, the problem there is that it wasn't well supported. So, so when it wasn't hardened, you know, we would lose 40% of our data, right? Just in pipes because, you know, the, the core team's trying to harden and tell Confluent, which was an enterprise worthy service yeah. from the core team. So they harden it. Now here's the worst story is that you know, they were on version, call it 1.0, and then, or call it 1.5, and then when they went to Confluent, they versioned, you know, back to something that was more reliable, scalable, and secure. Wow. So what happened is that we did all this Spark clusters, we did all this transformation in it, and we set all these teams free, and guess what? We couldn't use any of it. And then, so we had to get all the teams building, like, and that's what I'm saying, org design, to data vascularity to like delivering value to customers like i'm i'm the living like entity right now going through this rapid pace and investing not just i mean these are material dollars this is seven figures each yeah. one of my teams uh, costs us a tremendous amount of money and then just psychology and behavior then fast forward let's say another eight months and after we got everyone into confluent aws launches mks managed kafka services so at the touch of a button, it's completely handled yeah. at the bottom of every single microservice. So here's, you know, 27 months worth of investment, three massive iterations, but I had to get all the teams there, all for it to be just automated, included in my SLA annually by AWS. And I guess that's the challenge of yeah. being right at the coalface yes. and wanting to, <laughs> you know, drive that, um, that business <clears throat> change unfortunately i mean we, we will always need people like you nate because yeah. the reality is um, most of us want to jump on the back of that after the learning's been yeah, done that's right but the difficulty <laughs> is you're going to go through some of it and yeah. it's going to unravel yeah and it was cool i mean we got to teach people about it like i mean we were one of the first you know teams in the world to go serverless right i mean roll iq 
was almost 60, I mean, 60% of the experience was serverless. Like even our own teams, even myself, when we sat there and watched an experience being hydrated, yeah. right? Not off its own server side data where we, I mean, we were blown away. We're like, this, this is the future. Like this is how we could continue to deliver value faster. But then, um, you know, when the technology isn't quite hardened and then you lose 40% of role IQs for customers, yeah, not so fun. No, yeah. but but I I mean it's the the analogy you use there for for me when things have not gone well is when I've done most of my learning. Yeah, 100%. you know I still look back on scenarios over the years where um, you know early kind of head of IT roles when everything's fallen over you don't know how to recover. Yeah, uh, you've got you know rightly customers shouting and screaming at you. Yeah, uh, that's still probably the busiest six weeks of my entire career mm -hmm. and the most fun yeah maybe i'm a bit masochistic yeah. <laughs> i've got a feeling you might be a bit the same i am yeah i always say i love <laughs> i love when my face is put up against the concrete and just ground along the side of the road for a while <laughs> that's quite an image yeah <laughs> so what makes you want to drive change what makes you not want to sit with a status quo yeah who knows i mean i you know i probably had a screw loose um you know when i was young you know, I was a challenge in school for sure. Um, you know, I was one of those kids who, you know, really, I just didn't really believe the status quo, I guess, or I just didn't believe what I was being told was really true. I had to prove, you know, find for myself if it was like really legit or not. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I just, human potential is exciting for me. Like, I love the human character. I love human beings. I think human beings are, you know, well, I would say that I was taught that humans, no matter what circumstance, are actually very well intended once you get to know them. Yep. Once, once you understand their context <laughs> and where they came from, even their bad behaviors um, came from, you know, a, a place of trying to, you know, repair something that had occurred, uh, an experience they had previously in their life. And the second you see that moment and then you understand their behavior, you actually have a lot of empathy yeah. uh, for folks. And so... I think if there's anything you can collectively get a group of people together to all like move in the same direction and all have a lot of care and love for someone else and build something beautiful that changes the world, that's pretty exciting for me. I mean, that's why I get up every day. It's why, you know, I love building great products, but mostly it's why I love to build teams. I just, teams are fun. I, uh, I really appreciate that. When you were talking about school, it made me think, we would probably have had a riot for yeah. all of the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, right when I met, I mean, I, and you know this, but right when we saw each other, I'm like, this is this is gonna be a friendship that lasts a lifetime. My analogy is reason, season, or lifetime. You know, yeah. sometimes you meet people for a reason, a season, or lifetime, but the second I saw you, I knew it was gonna stick forever. It's, um, it's funny, because that kind of kindred, uh, that kindred spirit, um, and I think the uh, the rebellious nature for me, I couldn't ever sit still. Yeah. You know, years later, they probably would have diagnosed me with uh, ADHD yeah. or, or, or the like. But the reality was, um, you know, that kind of, it, it wasn't that I wanted to be naughty. Yeah. Uh, probably. There was an element I did. But it was mm -hmm. more, uh, I, you know, I had such phenomenal energy. Uh, yeah. Sitting in a classroom for me was my worst nightmare. 100%. I just felt contained and controlled. And... Uh, Neither of those things are things that I uh, enjoy. Yeah, it's, um, you know what I think is gonna happen here is, you know, I have four sons. Um, I have a couple of sons that, that think and do a little bit like I did yeah. at that age. <laughs> it's payback. It is payback, yeah. <laughs> um, but I have like that, I think where I've settled on this is that, you know, kind of more of a Western philosophical approach to education. I think that that type of education or that type of constraint actually is not conducive to a different learning style. And I think just you and I, and even my sons or people out there 
they just they learn differently and i think when yeah. this whole thing's all said and done we're going to look at all these people and you know they're they were spatial thinkers like they weren't meant to to think in this constrained yeah. environment they were meant to think and problem solve through you know through more artistic or spatial thinking uh patterns and so i'm cautiously optimistic that i think that um you know society is going to catch up <laughs> Maybe, maybe not, maybe. but it was, it was brutal. It was brutal growing, growing up and, and kind of thinking differently than, than other, or than school wanted me to think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would say for, for me, I found it hard going at times, uh, but I also knew I couldn't comply. Yeah. Uh, and I had absolutely no desire to comply. Yeah. So at the point um, I kind of went out into the workplace, um, it probably explains why I did turnaround stuff for 20 years. Yeah. because I can go in and fix and I can galvanize the troops and I've got a boatload of energy yeah. um, and I, I know what good looks like. Yeah. But if you're gonna say, Rach, this is how you're gonna do it, I'm gonna have to yeah. decline because that's, that's right. just not how I, how yeah. I roll. <laughs> and what about from a personal standpoint, Nate? Could you mm. share a kind of personal transformation with us? Yeah, I, oh my gosh. Um, I kind of feel like the whole, my whole life's been a transformation um you know man that's such a deep question um i could give you some highlights but i mean we've moved 13 times in 16 years wow um you know i started in i started out as an emergency medical technician uh to start a medical device company and then i did i did a decade worth of that um while having four boys and so, you know, the, the hard, the hard part there was I had to decide whether I was going to be an entrepreneur or a dad. And I think the, the tough lesson there is I got to know my kids in Michigan after I'd sold, um, you know, my first company. So I had to transform and I, and I've always wanted to be a dad, like a really, really loving father. And, um, I had to learn, um, to get to know my kids and my family in Michigan after I had, you know, grown Paramed yeah. and, and sold it. Um, that's one big transformation is, you know, becoming, you know, a, a, a father that my, my kids get to know and I get to know them and they feel the love of sort of like what every child should feel is how much they're loved by their parents. I'd say the second one is, you know, I, I was never, Rich, I was never into technology. I mean, I did, as Stryker, it was hardware. And then we did some hardware and software stuff, but maybe a little golden ticket I'll give you on this, which I've really never said to anyone before, is that when I left um, Stryker, I kind of got the whiff of what like hardcore IoT and software would look like. And we did engineer a lot of that magic into our products. But, you know, I wasn't on the front lines with Adam Downey. I was with, Adam Downey was one of our electrical, electrical engineers that kind of brought this IoT connected device, our ambulance caught talking to power load, yeah. and then being able to reduce back injuries and EMS. And I, I remember sitting next to him just being absolutely fascinating, uh, fascinated on like explaining the difference between a 13 pin connector, a 30 pin connector, a five pin connector, and then how that software talks to itself. So when I decided to leave Stryker, um, and this is like a body transformation, but I was 130 pounds when I started Paramed. When I left Stryker, I was 317 pounds. Wow. So I had to go through like a, a mental and a physical kind of rebirth of myself. When I started Brightface, um, I basically spent the vast majority, if not all the liquidity I'd spent from that acquisition on teaching myself software, on teaching myself a completely different industry. And so what that looked like, and a lot of people don't know this, but I hired 
like all of the brightest minds in hardware and software just to work around me every single day so I could understand how software worked. So I could actually learn how to develop. My, my dad said, you know, that, you know, that was your, your Harvard or Stanford education, but I actually had to build the environment to withstand and pay people around yeah. my mentality because I was because <laughs> I probably had so much ADHD and that and that's what happened like we we shipped 40 products uh 44 web applications in three years wow and um and three of those went through pretty material acquisitions sold one to Strava and then we also built the largest digital waiver application company just and that's prototyping it together at Brightface and then um Podium is a huge company today but I actually sold the domain um, to Eric and Dennis, and now that's one of the fastest growth tech companies in the world, and I, I talk to Eric a ton, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think everything I do has been, um, has been, I don't know if it's self-inflicted, but has been a, a, a pretty big mental um, thought about how um, I love to learn. Like, I absolutely yeah, love, yes, I, I love it, yeah. It's and and the the sense I always got from you, Nate, from the first time I heard you talking at um, the next web over in Amsterdam, yeah. is that desire to learn, yeah. that desire to better yourself, yeah. and that desire to give back, and and they are qualities that you you know you don't see in a lot of people, mm. um, and so for uh, for for me, I I can relate. Um, and just a big thanks. Really enjoyed yeah. chatting to you today. <laughs> Superb. Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure. I've loved. I love being with you. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks.